Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Country boys and girls getting down on the phone. Come on around back, Arizona. Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. First Saturday of the month, already into July, half over halfway through the year, we're past the summer solstice. The days are already starting to get shorter, and we've got Farm Fresh in studio. We've got Julie Murphy, the spokeswoman for Arizona Farm Bureau, talking about the $23 billion industry that agriculture is to the state of Arizona. And the goal with each one of these broadcasts is to connect you to the local uh, farm fresh commodities that are coming off our farms and ranches and as you're out shopping and providing for your family you know the brands to look for the uh, the things to understand you know there's a lot of really bad and scary information when it comes to uh, the food process and we're here to kind of just melt all that away and if you're following along in your Rosie on the House homeowner handbook and you flipped through to July you can see today we're talking Arizona melons Yes. Thank you, Romy. Um, what's exciting about that is we're going to be talking mostly about water, but the statistics of our melon production here in the state of Arizona. And the two tie in well because, you know, watermelon, watermelons in July, it's we celebrate watermelons a lot. And I think 80 to 90 percent of what comprises a watermelon is water. So I've asked Stephanie Smallhouse, president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, to join us today. Hi, Stephanie. Good morning, all. Glad to be here. Yes, happy to be here. And we all know her. She's a rancher in southern Arizona. If you're a dedicated listener, and I know Rosie on the House has a lot of dedicated listeners, you're very familiar with Stephanie because just six months ago we had her on. And we want to launch right into this. She goes, you don't need to talk much about me and ask about our hundred and nearly 40 year old ranch uh let's just talk about water so staff i'm gonna launch right into it Uh, ag water is important and there's a lot of controversy and sometimes we hear that on the news so what is the most important message up front that you want to share with our arizona families about water in arizona especially agriculture's use of it absolutely well i think everybody is is picking up um finally on the what's being called the mega drought that we've been in for about 20 years here in Arizona. It's been in the news a lot, especially with what's happening with the Colorado River and the water that's available for the different um, states in the lower basin, which the lower basin for us is California, Arizona, and Nevada. But what I, I wanted to start off with is, number one, just to let people know that Agriculture does use a lot of water. We use about the same average amount of water to grow food as everywhere else in the world. About 70% of Arizona's water goes for uh, food production. But the fact is, is that's what it takes to grow food. You need sunshine, you need good soils, and you need water, all of which we have in Arizona. And so people often ask me, well, why are we even farming in the desert if we don't have enough water? Well, practically speaking, um, from a farming um, perspective, we don't farm and ranch in Arizona in spite of the desert climate. We farm and ranch here because of the desert climate. And that's because we have so much sunshine, because we can control our water application, which most of the country cannot. 
Um, they take it when they can get it, and sometimes it's not enough, and sometimes it's too much, and they don't have the infrastructure available to control that. And we have that in Arizona. I've done a good job. And so I think mostly I just want to convey to people today how important it is to be able to sustain our agriculture industry in Arizona, really for Arizona's resiliency overall, going into all of these discussions that we're going to be having over the next uh, few years about the Colorado River, about groundwater around the state, and all of the things that impact um, farmers' ability to, to grow food here locally. So I love that. And to your point, we don't grow and do agriculture in Arizona despite, but because of being in the desert, the USDA Census of Agriculture reported that the top five counties in America, not in Arizona, but in America, are the highest producing, produce the highest yields of alfalfa. So that right alone proves a point to our sunshine and the robustness of our growth. I love that. So, you know, as we're talking about this ag water issue, we're talking about a lot of complexities, and I'm launching into them right away by asking for our listeners about the 2019 Upper and Lower Basin Drought Contingency Plan. What exactly was that established to do, and what has it so far achieved? <laughs> well, I don't, uh, I don't want to get too wonky for, for Romy's uh, listeners uh, this early on a Saturday, but I think I can run through it pretty quickly in terms of what's going on. So in 2007, kind of we have to back up a little bit. In 2007, um, folks were predicting, all of the smart people that do modeling and Bureau of Reclamation that watch the river, were predicting that we were going to um, have a severe shortage in the river system because of the fact that since 2000, the lake levels in Lake Mead and um, Lake Powell have continually be, been dropping. And so you think of them like a big measuring cup. And the Bureau of Reclamation and the water modelers and the hydrologists have been seeing the water level go down and they measure that. And at the same time, the water that was coming in was not keeping up with the water that was going out. And so in 2007, um, we developed an agreement with, it, with all of the different states, which basically planned for the shortage sharing. Because you have to remember back in the 1920s is when it was decided how much every state would get in terms of water from the Colorado River system. And it, it became apparent there wasn't going to be enough water for everybody based on those numbers. So we did that in 2007. Then in 2017, it became apparent that we were in a little bit more trouble and that we were going to need to save even more water. And so we had to go back to the drawing table and figure out which states were going to do which things to ensure that enough water would be left in the lake. So we did the drought contingency plan in 2019. And what that did that really impacted agriculture is it basically took away all of the excess water that was available to agriculture in Pinell County to grow food, um, surface water. And so what that meant for those farmers was a 40 to 50% fallowing, which has already happened. We have a lot of our members who have cut their production in half. And I always tell people, you know, I don't know many businesses that could withstand a 40 to 50% income cut, but that's what's happening. So um, that happened in 2019 pretty much immediately, and, uh, and those farmers have been transitioning to groundwater since that time. Um, now, fast forward to 2020, 2021, uh, Bureau of Reclamation came back and said, you know what, the DCP, the drought contingency plan, is not saving enough water in the lakes. We need two to four million acre feet more. Now, this is a lot of water that we're talking about and a lot of water to find in places that are not readily available. 
And so that has sort of transitioned us into the most latest um, agreements and talks that have been in the news. But what the 2019 drought contingency plan basically did is it put us in it put us on track to continue thinking of innovative ways to save water, to mitigate for farmers that are losing water, um, to start appropriating funding for infrastructure and uh, technology. And so we, it kind of, kind of got us into that mode, which I think is good, but it wasn't enough. And so now we're looking towards other actions to be taken in the future. One thing too that, and you briefly hit on that, is that it has severely impacted our Pinal County farmers and following or stop. That's a big word or complicated word for saying they have to cut back on a certain percentage of their acres to farm. So literally, if it's fallowed, there's nothing growing on it. Um, The encouraging note, though, and they had actually been working on this in Pinal County for at least the last two decades, trying to shift that infrastructure that takes and builds on the surface water availability, they'd already been shifting to infrastructure build out for groundwater. In other words, refurbishing wells, maybe bringing new ones on. So that's a critical point. But because the drought being so severe, they haven't quite, because this all takes money, they haven't been able to shift as quickly as they had hoped because the drought was so intense. Talking to my Pinal County farmers, and that's where I grew up, we farmed in Maricopa County, they said, we're doing it. It's just not at the speed with which you and I would like to. If we had all the money available, even then the infrastructure shift would be pretty intense. So I'm glad you pointed that out. So they're hopeful. Farmers are eternal optimists, but it's pretty tough. Transitioning to another point or part of this complicated ag water story is Talk about the legislation, especially last year, that committed $1 billion to water augmentation. And then how is this now parceled out? I mean, this was a significant bill. Many of us may have heard of it, but in our busy lives, it kind of went in one ear and out the other. What does this exactly does this mean? Well, we have a lot of moving parts going on right now. Like I said, it, it's, it's motivated us to come up with a lot of ways to fund different projects and so to prioritize that. And so we have state legislative efforts that appropriated um, basically that money that you're talking about for the next three years, and that's going to go to the Water Infrastructure Finance Authority. And so that will go to all different types of projects around the state, both in rural and urban projects, to address things like water reuse, um, water treatment, uh, water augmentation, looking at desalinization. All of the things are on the table. And every project, you know, from the smallest to the largest, depending upon whether you're a rural water system, whether you're farming in um, rural parts of the state, or whether you're trying to um, modernize infrastructure, you know, within Phoenix. And so, so that's one package. Then there were two federal funding packages. There was the Inf- um, Inflation Reduction Act, which we call the IRA, um, and that set aside $4 billion for um, basically – Uh, Western drought water issues, and that's for water management and conservation efforts, both short-term and long-term. And then, of course, we had um, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, also passed last year, which is going to provide $8.3 billion um, for similar to what the state legislation did for infrastructure, water storage, conveyance, recycling, desalinization reuse, et cetera, et cetera. 
So there is a lot of money flowing into this problem. The question is, how do we prioritize that money and how quickly can we get it on the ground? We know that we have issues right now. We continue to have issues with supply chain management. We continue to have issues with labor shortages. And all of these things impact, like those Pinellas farmers' ability to be able to get those wells um, retrofitted and upgraded and, and back online. And Hold- so we, we also have to remember, you know, you were talking about the Pinellas farmers. They were promised um, their full allocation of water until 2030. And the Farm Fresh Hour, Julie Murphy, her host and the spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau. And your guest today is the president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, current president, Stephanie Smallhouse, joining us from on the phone from her farm in southern Arizona. Yes, and uh, the topic is water and melons. Uh, by the way, as I said earlier, melons, watermelons are comprised mostly of water and a lot of nutrients and they're very, it's very delicious. So we're talking water while we're talking melons. By the way, I wanted to just quickly mention that approximately a dozen Arizona melon growers grow for the market on thousands of acres here in Arizona. Most of the protection is in Yuma, Pinal County, and Maricopa counties. And some of our farm families that have been growing melons have been doing it for generations. So it's all pretty cool. I and, was reading some of your stats and you were talking about you know, 92% of watermelon is water. Is that the fruit inside or does that include the rind as well? Because that's pretty dense rind. It is dense. Probably the fruit is just the it 92%. It is the fruit. Yes, correct. And uh, they like to say that watermelons are both a fruit and a vegetable because of the rind. You can do a lot with the rind. I don't do much with the rind. I just enjoy the fresh red meat inside. But You let the chickens have fun with the rind. Yeah, we, <laughs> there you go. Everybody's enjoying watermelon here on the farm. And Arizona has, according to the 2021 numbers, about 46,000 acres of watermelon. Actually, 4,600. What did I say? 46,000. Oh, I'm sorry. 4,600. Yes. I tried to sneak in an extra zero on Yeah, it it works. (laughs) We'll take it. But um, of note, most of our growers are large and they're commercial growers, but they're still family-owned and operated. Then on the flip side of that, we have a lot of our direct market farmers, retail farmers that you, you meet at the farmer's market. They're growing a lot of melons, the honeydew, and some of the other varieties that we might not necessarily get in the grocery store. I think of Frank Martin. He tries and does everything. He's with Cricket Sky Farms. You can meet him on the Gilbert Farmers Market and some of the other markets. He's always growing melons. So we have a great diversity of our melon growers here in the state of Arizona. And I think you're a little late if you want to do it yourself or try your own. But when we're talking about farming for ourselves or doing our own little garden or something in the back, having a successful crop, melons are one of those that are kind of hard to screw up. They are, and they they grow fast, and uh, they're just ready for you when the season's right, so it's good. You'll be the, the destination of the neighborhood in the summer if you've yes. got a couple of big watermelon vines. Especially over 4th of July weekend, so exactly. if you haven't gotten your watermelons yet, get them now, because most likely we'll probably be getting an Arizona watermelon. And on that point, Stephanie, we kind of had to cut it short. Was there anything else you wanted to add to the last year's legislation that was so significant to us in helping us with our water issues? 
No, I just, I guess I just wanted to make the point, let people know that there are a lot of moving parts right now, a lot of um, thinking and funding going into the current situation um, for those particular efforts. So. so in the meantime, because we're being proactive and Arizona actually has in the past, currently does some really great water policy we anticipated this. Uh, our farmers and ranchers from the very beginning knew that we needed infrastructure if we were going to grow in the desert. But in the meantime, how well is Arizona positioned in this water crisis? Well, I think some of the the most proactive and um, new technology in terms of growing crops in an arid environment happen in Arizona because of our resources and our forward thinking. You know that what's happening in Arizona in terms of freshwater um, is not just happening here. I mean, this is actually a global issue. There are a lot of countries on the globe right now that are trying to figure out the same problems, but uh, we're, I think, probably at the forefront of those. And so I think we're positioned well. We have uh, two great universities here in Arizona that are working on um, farming in the desert type issues, looking at crops that can be grown with less water. But the important thing to talk about is a lot of people ask, well, why don't we just grow something different in Arizona that requires uh, less water? Isn't that just the answer to the problem? And then we can keep agriculture at the same time. Well, you know, that seems like a pretty logical um, solution. However, um, farmers grow things that they can sell, right? So they grow things that um, have a certain amount of demand. And so it's not just a matter of well, I'm just going to grow this crop because it requires less water. Well, you have to have a market for that crop. And so right now we have a lot of smart people looking into crops that are lower water use crops, but that also um, fill a certain demand out there um, for their use. And so you think about Wauli and what's happening with that in Arizona. Um, you think about some other products that are coming out of um, some research in New Mexico that would be helpful in the oil industry that farmers can grow. So there's lots of things going on, but there does have to be a market. And so farmers still have to they have a business, they have to pay bills, they have expenses. Um, and so all of that has to go into the consideration. And so we're also very proactive on that front as well in terms of where Arizona agriculture sits. I've been working for Arizona Farm Bureau now for 17 years, loved every day of it, will continue to love every day of it. But that's one of the big points is farmers tell me, Julie, I'd love to try low water use use crop, but I need a market. More with Julie Murphy, spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, and Stephanie Smallhouse, current president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, here at Rosie on the House after bottom of the hour news.
4th of July weekend here at Rosie on the House and all across the great state of uh, Arizona and this wonderful country we call America. And uh, July is National Watermelon Month, and it just so happens that uh, is our topic. We are talking a lot of water today as well, but uh, there's some great local names that people can be looking for when they're in their uh, market and farm stands to know that they're getting Melons grown right here that have traveled very short distances. They're going to be fresher, and uh, you're going to be supporting your local farm. Yes. Family. What better uh, item to have for your 4th of July weekend dinner, lunch, whatever, than watermelon? And one family, the Martores, who have been growing since 1953 for generations, the family markets under the candy label, and they sell to all the major retailers. So and it's that's easy there. Candy and with a K. Candy with a K. And of note on all of this, if you don't get to the grocery store, but you are going to make it to the farmer's market, pretty much most of the time, depending on the farmer's market, you will be buying their melons right from them directly as our direct market farmers. That they probably like, picked that morning. That they Yes, most likely picked that morning morning. Another family, Rousseau's, they grow watermelons. They are harvesting as we speak. Well, actually, all the melon growers are. And I believe their uh, label is the Majesty Majesty Five Crowns. Uh, Rousseau family, check in with me if I've got that wrong. But they have a label that you can find at the uh, grocery store. They also grow sweet corn, and they have three generations of farming in Tolleson and Scottsdale. They also have a weekend farmer's market, and it closes after this 4th of July weekend. So try to get there. It's on Saraval, I think is how you say Mm -hmm. that, and Olive. The family hosts their farmer's market, and they close after the 4th of July holiday. So keep that in mind. And any supermarket in the West Valley usually has big cardboard boxes out front that say Russo on it that are full Right. Watermelons. And sometimes you even see just pickup trucks parking beside it and they'll load 20, 30 into yes. it and take it to wherever their little farm stand that they're selling somewhere else down the road. But yeah, they're, they've got the West Valley, Glendale, Peoria, Surprise, uh, any grocery store I've seen over there during right. the summer months always has that Russo label right on front. And then keep in mind, uh, too, that if you're going to the farmer's market, you you can probably talk to the farmer and quiz him on everything that they grow. And I'm pretty confident that Frank Martin Martin, Martin is doing uh, honeydew. USDA doesn't count that as them uh, because I think they have to have a certain threshold of how many acres they're growing for them to count. They used to, but they don't now. But we have fresh melons out there for you guys. So, Stephanie, back to the water issue that uh, melons require – we kind of have have a tendency to stay on the Colorado River issue. It's a big river. People kind of focus on that. But we don't realize that regionally within the state, everybody's water issues are different. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Well, I'll just say, you know, when, when agriculture in Arizona has water, we can grow like around 270 different products, which is amazing for our state because a lot of people don't think of us as a farming state, but it's true because of our climate. You know, around the state, we've got farmers that, um, you know, are, are pretty much dealing with water access issues, affordability issues that have to do with groundwater. There are other surface water areas of the state. Um, there are farmers that are um, in court 
because of adjudication issues, because Arizona as a state still hasn't properly adjudicated and appropriated a lot of the water that farmers have been using for over 100 years. <laughs> and so it seems kind of strange that a farmer would still have to be in court um, for that water. But, you know, we, we tend sometimes to focus just on the Colorado River and what's happening with the Central Arizona Project. But we have to remember that we've got uh, robust agriculture happening all over the state. And so if you southeastern Arizona and northwestern Arizona, we have farmers who are looking at some um, some challenges in the future in terms of groundwater, access to groundwater. And uh, we have farmers in the Safford area along the Gila River and in the San Pedro, um, along the San Pedro River down in southern Arizona who are dealing with adjudication issues and the right to access the water. So a lot of, a lot of moving parts for agriculture with water. But like I said, you know, if, if agriculture has water, we can do amazing things with it. And you were talking about the melons and I just wanted to point out that, you know, those major growing areas of Yuma County, Maricopa County, Pinal County, which is a lot of what we've been talking about this morning, um, those three, just those three counties alone provide over 70% of the agriculture sales in the state of Arizona. Wow. And, you know, with the water issues that exist there, that could have a, a huge impact for our food resiliency in Arizona if farmers... So, you know, for instance, in Yuma, um, you know, they, they're, they are at risk, even though they are the highest priority water users along the river. When we start to renegotiate uh, the Colorado River um, operating system after 2025, you know, they are at risk of, of uh, having their priorities changed. And I think that would be a tragedy for Arizona because, you know, I think we need to focus on what we do right now that's really good in Arizona in terms of agriculture and industry and not sacrifice you know, agricultural water for what might be a possibility 50 years in the future in terms of housing development. So we need to protect our, our successful industries and uses right now and then start to plan for future uses. Yes. And the reality, too, is kind of focus on Yuma a little bit more. What they do, what California does and Yuma does, you cannot replicate that in other any other location in the United States. So if we shut off the spigot to our Yuma farmers, you're not going to say, oh, well, they can just grow it in the Midwest. They're not going to be able to. The Midwest is beautiful with their field corn, with their soybeans. Yuma is beautiful with their leafy greens. And that is going to be a critical thing that we've got to keep in mind. So another question is agriculture has taken a lot of flack for growing quote-unquote, thirsty crops, especially alfalfa. Talk a bit more about this and what's our perspective in the agriculture industry. Well, like I said before, I mean, when we grow things in Arizona, we grow them very well. And uh, we get a lot of help from God on that with the sunshine yes. <laughs> and our good soils and things like that. But we do, our farmers do a really good job. And so um, alfalfa is sort of, if you think of farming as an industry in terms of a food pyramid, alfalfa is like on the base level because it provides so much of the foundational um, products for the rest of our agriculture in terms of livestock, right? And so um, any dairy product that you consume, uh, highly perishable uh, product, very local in Arizona, you go to the grocery store, you buy a gallon of milk, you know, that was just taken off of the dairy, you know, within hours before the very local product. Those, that sector highly depends on alfalfa production in Arizona, and it has to be close, right? So the dairies move to where the, where the alfalfa is produced. 
Um, the average is three tons per acre in the country. In Arizona, it's eight tons per acre. And there are some areas that even get more than that. And so that's why we have a robust dairy industry. We have a robust beef industry here. Um, because of our climate, we don't have to deal with a lot of pests and um, different things that they have to in other parts of the country. So it's a great place to grow beef. Our beef industry is dependent upon that alfalfa. So that's why I say alfalfa production is like at the base of the farming pyramid in terms of if you have, if you have a strong base, you're going to have a strong strong sectors in other areas. I always like to say that we're really only separated by one or two links in the food, local food supply chain. Farmers grow the alfalfa, dairy cows eat the alfalfa, you and I enjoy dairy products. And again, to your point, dairies have to be local. That always has to be a local food component within our supply chain. And we're always so bullish on the whole local movement, as we should be, but we don't realize that it's small, medium, and large, organic, conventional, biotech farming that's contributing to that local market. It's not just my small farmer that sells exclusively at farmer's markets. So we have to keep the whole scope, the whole agriculture perspective in perspective. So, you know, I, one of my farmers I talked to, in the earlier part of this year was uh, Noah Hicks, Hiscox. He was, his dad farmed, he farmed growing up. Then he went to U of A, got his mathematics degree, and he was a math teacher. And then his dad said, hey, are you interested now to come back to the farm? He did, and he's been farming ever since. So he has a real math mind. He's always calculating, looking at all this stuff. We've been in this 20, 22-year-old drought. He thinks that we're about to go into a wet season, as he likes to call it. Woohoo! And so I, I'm <laughs> calling it the Hiscox theory, and I'm like really praying that that's true. Have you heard any other signals to that? And what does that mean if it is? I think that every farmer in Arizona is thinking that. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't keep going. <laughs> you, as nobody, nobody plans for the worst and hopes for the best, like farmers and ranchers. And so, I, like you said, we're the eternal optimists. So, of course, we we always say next year is going to be a change in cycle. And so, that's what we think. Yes, and you know, you already spoke to this: the um, criticism of these high water use crops and you can't just shift if there's no market and even the capital invest investment on the current crops that someone grows you know the carlink ranch your ranch in southern arizona you and andy you even grow forage crops you're not exclusively a ranch have you pondered the alternatives and if the market's there you're going to do it right i mean what other points to that do you have well, most of the most of the forage products that we grow, we use for ourselves. And so if we couldn't do that, then it would be difficult, you know, for we would have to be constantly going out to other areas. We do depend on Pinnell. We have some Pinnell County growers that grow for us. We have some Cochise County growers. But we supplement our grazing rotation system with what we grow here on the farm. But an example of always looking for that other crop, that other market that's low water use, you know, we started growing saguaro cactus um, about 10 years ago. That's obviously a very low water use crop that has high demand, it just requires a lot of um, time investment. And, you know, a lot of folks don't have that. <laughs> right. And so we're six generations in, so we feel like we can afford 20 years or so to get a, another product online. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> if there's family businesses that think long-term, it is definitely agriculture, right? 
And you have two kids. For sure. I, for sure. I think that that's an issue with all of this discussion about water planning is that it's so hard for people in agriculture to to try to understand other perspectives in the sense that, you know, we're, we're planning for generations ahead of food production. When most people go to the grocery store and they get whatever they want, they have it available to them. Even after COVID, you know, people have already snapped back to, well, I have all the food available to the me that I need. And and we don't have this pressing um, concern of, but agriculture has to have the water for you to have the food that you need. And so, you know, we're thinking, I'm already thinking of my son's generation and how we can, how we can prepare him on the ranch in order to keep being productive. But if we don't have water, we can't do that. That's something that's out of our control, both, you know, legally and and from nature, you know, so we have to plan other things. Excellent. (laughs) All right. When we get back, you're going to get Rosie's tips on the warning of growing melons at home and a tip on how you can do it. But they're dangerous. Great job, Ed. That sounds great. Okay, I can't leave the uh, topic of melons without giving our listeners a warning of how dangerous they are. In my garden in the backyard, every time I've pulled a rattlesnake out of that garden, it's underneath the cantaloupe plants. <laughs> so about five years ago, I built a gate to the neighbor's yard, and I'd get the neighbor's dog, and I'd let the dog run through the garden before I'd go in. And Jennifer didn't think that was very neighborly. So I discovered last year you can grow them vertical. I harvested a cantaloupe four feet off awesome. the ground. Yeah. And you know our farmers can't let their dogs run through the field <laughs> because of food safety issues. So um, Stephanie had a point about her idea for a water budget for each person. So, Steph, give us your insights on that. Well, just real quickly, I think a lot of people get confused when you start to, it kind of eyes glaze over when you start talking about priority water rights and appropriating the Colorado River and renegotiating it. And, you know, for policy wonks, this is a huge deal and everybody, you know, we're in the details. But I realize that regular people are like, you've lost me. I don't know what you're talking about. So I think if everybody just thought about the fact that if you had to appropriate your own water budget, right, so you bring it down from 100,000 levels of the Colorado River and seven basin states to your household. And everybody got a certain water budget every year. And and basically, it was on paper, just like the Colorado River water budget is. And they come to you and say, okay, you've got 100 chips here, and you you divvy them up how you want to use your water. And if you want a certain number of chips to go to, you know, your swimming pool, you put it over there, a certain number of chips to go to food production, a certain number of chips to go to your toilet flushes, you get the idea. I think people would prioritize their water use a lot differently if they were thinking about appropriating their own water use the way that we are along the Colorado River, I think most people would identify a large amount of chips of their water budget to go towards food. And then they would make that connection. Oh, yeah, I didn't appropriate any of my water budget for food. What the heck am I going to eat next year? And so I think that's a way to understand this complicated system of contracts and water appropriation for just your own household. And if you think about it that way, I think that people might pay a little bit more attention, hopefully, to how that water at the 100,000-foot level is being appropriated. Wow. Okay, so I'm thinking a lot of if we had to do that as residents, decide 
where our water budget went, we'd probably have a lot of pools that dried up. And it, or we'd say, you can only fl- flush once a day. Can you imagine that if you're a family of six, you got four <laughs> little kids? That's just not going to work. So water is always... It really brings it down to your level, though. Yes. You know what I mean? Like thinking, okay, where, where should I be using my water? What is most important to me today? Exactly. And I... Thank you for that insights. And water will always be a top priority for the Arizona Farm Bureau. So for listeners, if you're ever curious about some of our water issues, we're always reporting on it. You can go to azfb.org. We even try to highlight it on fillyourplate.org, which is more about nutrition. But again, without water, we can't grow and eat nutritious food. Romy, it looked like you had a question. Well, I was just going through some of your notes here. And one thing I noticed... You had mentioned, uh, you know, the your blog at fillyourplate.org when you type melons in there, and then the, even the notes you sent me for this weekend, you don't hardly ever mention melons without mentioning sweet corn. Are, <laughs> are they in the same family that I'm just missing something here? For me, they are because sweet I'm corn. I'm sorry, sweet corn and watermelon <laughs> dish. Do you, you, you combine yes. those with cantaloupe? <laughs> yes. So you know, Fourth of July meals. We grow a lot of wonderful sweet corn. Most people don't realize that. And we have an extended season. We think it's short because if you're just looking at the sweet corn in the valley, it starts, they start planting and they can probably harvest late May after July 4th and it starts getting too hot. But if you go up north and down south where the temperatures are lighter, I, I can extend in Arizona the sweet corn season into September. Like if you go up north to Mortimer Farms, we've had Charla Mortimer on here, you're going to be able to get summer sweet corn a lot longer than what my valley farmers are able to grow sweet corn. So that's why it's a summer crop just like watermelon. So I mention it a lot because I love both of them. Well, and uh, Camp Verde's got a their little local uh, sweet corn grower there and then all the way up to uh, Snowflake and even Sholo. You can get sweet corn. So it's a, one of those few varieties that grow at multiple elevations. You can never grow alfalfa up there. You can never grow elo- melons at that elevation. Right. But the, the sweet corn, it, it's it can, elevation tolerant. Right. Don't, don't they have the sweet corn trail that you can, you can follow it and tour almost all of Arizona? You know, they may have a sweet corn trail, and you just give gave me an epiphany. We need to we need to feature that on fill your plate if if we don't. But yes, um, if I'm going to start eating Arizona sweet corn, I'm going to start in the valley, early in the season, and then I can go up north and or down south. Cochise County they grow a lot of sweet corn. It can last a little bit longer seasonally for them, so it's a really good time. And you know, Stephanie, I hear you have a big party this weekend. Yeah. We only have 30 seconds, so are you celebrating 4th of July this weekend with your family? Yeah, it's just something we do for our workers. This is the hardest working time for our employees in June, trying to keep livestock waters growing and crops irrigated, and so we'd like to take a little break in between, and hopefully it's raining by now, but if it's not, we still celebrate uh, celebrate our employees and the good job that they're doing. Oh, Stephanie, that's awesome. Thanks for joining us, and thank you to all the listeners We love what we do, and we love talking about Arizona agriculture. And you can support your local Arizona agricultural industry with a $60 a year subscription. Yeah, $59 a year uh, membership. Sign up at azfb.org. And you're supporting our farm.